Hello and welcome to episode 388 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're doing it again. We're coming to you in separate locations. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. And I'm coming to you from Redmond, Washington, still home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. It's the Jimmy Graham edition, part two. <laughs> really an unprecedented situation in Pelton Cast history where we've had to leave a podcaster in the middle of it and just post it as exactly an emergency true. pod. And with the timing actually worked out weirdly nicely for you to just call it a Leonard Williams emergency pod. It did. I mean, obviously, like, as soon as I saw the news, like, I started planning that. Like, I knew what I was going to Oh, gonna... that it was going to be. Wow, you are just some producer, ain't you? <laughs> I'm producing. I'm grading trades. I'm all over the place. <laughs> Look, we do not have to have a beer this week. We do have we... some toasts. Okay. Wow, toasts. I, I also have a follow-up question for the previous episode. Okay. Do you want to do that first? No, do the toast first. All right, first off, congrats to the Storm's Ezzy Magbagor, who was chosen for the EuroLeague Women's Team of the Month for October after averaging 18.2 points, 10.2 rebounds in a league-leading 3.6 blocks per game. Here we go. We also, this week, are remembering beloved longtime Seattle chef Thierry Rotorot, a.k.a. the chef in the hat who died Sunday at age 64 after battling pulmonary fibrosis. Rotorot, born in France before settling in Seattle to run restaurants Rovers, Luke's, and Lulay, won James Beard Award for Best Chef Northwest in 1998, was a two-time competitor on Top Chef Masters, also very famously hosted, locally hosted the Seattle Kitchen Radio Show with fellow Seattle chef icon Tom Douglas. Nice. So a real loss to the Seattle restaurant community. He hadn't he had retired uh, after closing the the two remaining o- uh, open restaurant Luke and Lule in 2021, but uh, uh, certainly made a mark on Seattle's restaurant scene. My uh, my question for you is just to follow up on the trade grades. You said you didn't know what you would grade them because you didn't have the information about what what the trade was. But now that you do, can we get there? They've already been out there for the world. I feel like they've had enough time exclusive on ESPN.com. But so what what did the grades or, end up being? Or if you listen to the Hoop Collective podcast, we talked through them a bit. Uh, it was a, a, a B minus for the Clippers, a B for the Sixers, and an A minus for Oklahoma City, which we did not know was the third team in this trade. We until- should have known. We should have. I mean, it it actually was completely logical. It was after it happened. I was like, wait, why didn't I think of that like a month ago when it was reported that they were trying to trade a pick swap for an actual first round pick? So, who else would do that but the Clippers? So, they ended up with the Clippers like unprotected 28 pick or something? No, they got the pick swap in 2027. They traded the Clippers. Yes. Because the pick swap wouldn't have been couldn't have gone to the Sixers. They don't have a first round pick in 2027. But the Thunder are likely to be very good in 2027, also can swap it for one of their other picks. And then they're sending the Clippers and then eventually the Sixers, you know, uh one of their weakest of the of three picks in 2026, including the the Clippers. So it's very amusing. Yeah. I don't They've, know if that's exactly the way I describe it. True. Fair point. Fair uh, 
for the Once Sixers and Clippers part of it. Back, I, I feel like the, there'll oh, be a cleansing effect. For sure. Yeah. They'll, we'll still have a lingering hate forever, but there will be a cleansing effect. For the Sixers and Clippers, I mean, this this made sense for both sides. This was kind of a logical outcome. I think when we first recorded, the timing made me assume that the Clippers had kind of been the team that blinked in these negotiations. That was why it got done uh, on on Monday night after, you know, months of knowing that James Harden wanted to go to the Clippers. Once, and that once they were the, the Niners only... had lost three in a row. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were the only interested Sooners. But then when the full details came out, it seems like this was probably more or less the offer the Clippers had been making for a period of time. And it was actually the Sixers who, based on Tyrese Maxey winning Eastern Conference Player of the Week, in his strong start, were like, let's wash our hands of this James Harden situation. We're, re- we're ready to be done with it. So, okay. How many teams has James Harden been on now, right? Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, City, Houston. And then, wait, he got traded from Houston to Brooklyn. Yeah. To Philadelphia and now to the Clippers. Yeah. He's like getting up there as far as like superstar players and the amount of teams that they played on. I mean, this era is much higher, obviously, in superstar players. Also, notably that uh, notable that three of those five teams he played with PJ Tucker on, who was there traded with him as part of this deal. Oh, so PJ Tucker was playing today for the Clippers. Correct. But the the funny thing was, I just in my head, PJ Tucker is a Clippers oh, player. Just logic. It was just I logical. saw him and I was like, I guess he's been on the Clippers the whole time. <laughs> they were talking on the broadcast with them adding PJ Tucker, and I was like. I'd feel like he is permanently on the Clippers. You were you were the astronaut meme. PJ Tucker's on the Clippers. It's like the was. shining at the end when he's in the in the at the ballroom the whole time, right? When Jack is in the ballroom the whole time. That's PJ Tucker and the Clippers. I don't get this reference. It's not but, a spoiler because it's November first. And you <laughs> could not watch the shining anytime for the next eleven months. That is fair. That is very thoroughly fair. Uh, anything else on this one, or should we get, should we get into the long-awaited roundup? Here we go. All roundup. It is the <laughs> podcast you've been waiting for. It's not quite all roundup. You know we love is... to do it. You know we love to do the oops all roundup podcast. <laughs> Seattle Kraken snapped a two-game losing streak. Are, we, are we talking baseball? By the way, should we? Or I, I, do you want to talk baseball? I, I don't know if where that fits in the roundup or is that is that pre roundup baseball? The Mariners are not technically part of the roundup. Okay, I you have very strict rules about what is and what is not roundup, and it's usually based upon whether I engage with any of it or just Correct. sit here listening. Correct, and and then try to see if later in the week I can repeat back the information, which usually you can't. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, uh, the Sounders information is just directly in one ear and out the other. Uh... On, on baseball, just quickly, obviously we saw earlier today the Texas Rangers win their first World Series, leaving the Mariners as one of five remaining teams who have I actually was shocked that number was that high. I thought it was like... Five? I thought it might have been the only one, honestly. I know they're the, the only, only ones team. who haven't made the World Series. I mean, baseball is I a different I kind of bet. sport than almost any other sport because you could... Like, A, the, the Yankees win most of the World Series if you look if you look in a great enough scope or whatever. But also, things are kind of rigged in baseball because of the no salary cap. Like, there's not the same kind of equity. That but I would say it's actually the opposite of what you're saying. Like, I'm not, 
obviously I know which NBA teams haven't won championships, but I'm not surprised NBA teams haven't won championships because if you think there's a lot of them concentrated on one team in baseball, wait till you learn about the Lakers and the Celtics. Sure. Wait, so NBA teams that haven't won championships, Memphis, uh, the Clippers, Sacramento. Those are teams that, these are all teams that have never made the finals. Okay. How many more are there? That haven't made the finals? Or that haven't won the championship? I don't know. There's at least probably like a half a dozen. So Brooklyn... so there's a lot more in the NBA. NBA is young, a younger sport too, though, right? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look at that. I mean, the expansion eras were a little earlier in the NBA, I actually think. There weren't maybe as many teams prior to his expansion. But Brooklyn, Charlotte never but made the finals. Brooklyn count because the or you're, you're talking winning? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, now I switch to winning. Okay, because New Jersey obviously went to the... Correct. Okay, so Brooklyn, Charlotte. Uh, Let's see here. Detroit obviously has... Uh, Indiana. They've never won. to the finals, but has never won. Wow. I think both those teams won ABA titles. Clippers, as you mentioned. The Grizzlies, as you mentioned. Uh, The Minnesota Timberwolves, who have never been to the finals and have only won a playoff series in one year in the franchise's history. <laughs> the New Orleans Pelicans, who are new, have not been to the finals. Uh, the Let's see here. Orlando hasn't won it. They've been to the finals multiple times. Phoenix has never won it, despite being in the league since 1969. Wow. Sacramento. Sacramento won it as Cincinnati, so I guess I guess or no, they didn't win it as Cincinnati. Yeah, they never did. So them and Utah has never won the championship. So it's wow. like twelve it's teams. Like kind of a lot of like classic franchises too, or like cornerstone franchises in the NBA. It's almost like winning winning a title in the NBA is such a prestigious thing. If somebody did that in a city, you would do almost anything to not move the team from that city. But that would just be me how I would approach it. Um so, I mean, Phoenix and Utah are like two of the most successful teams, you know, probably of the last of our lifetimes. I think Phoenix, Indiana are pretty surprising. Like Indiana has been had periods of being very good. Orlando has been to the finals so many times. Anyway, yeah. five teams in baseball that have never won a World Series. Uh, and the Mariners are one of those teams. They sure are. So the, the I, two things I, that, I, or, that I think came out of this, number one, your conversation about Paul Seawald, a little bit different now, Softy. Sorry to call you out by name. The The idea that the Mariners are so upset or that Mariners fans are so upset about the Paul Seawald trade because of him sending the D-backs to the World Series, all of a sudden with a blown save in the World Series and giving up four runs in the top of the ninth. I don't know if you're paying any attention to that. It was 1-0 before I, Paul Seawald was came not. in. There was I'm a chance in the bottom of the ninth for the Diamondbacks to make the series 3-2. After Paul, obviously there was an air in there as well, but like Paul Seawald giving up that two-run homer, it was something we weren't thinking about. The second piece was when we were there watching the Mariners take three of four from the Rangers to end the season, it was so apparent just how dangerous that Rangers lineup was. And so the Mariners losing to the, winning three of four against that team, but also just getting slaughtered by them throughout the regular season like the Mariners retrospect retroactively. I, I do think it makes the season look a little bit better 
knowing just how good those two ALS teams were and just how dominant that Rangers offense was as well. Um, and then yep. the last piece was, well, I get there's two other, two other baseball thoughts that I'd had today. Money wins, right? The Rangers completely turned around their franchise. They end up with their first World Series of all time. The Mariners not in the playoffs at all. Marcus Simeon hitting that home run in the ninth inning to basically that. I mean, it was already more or less over, but that was it. The World Series was done when he hit that homer. So that happening plus the Seager signing would have been awesome. Might have been nice. Uh, and then the last piece was on the opposite end of the spectrum. I just don't know if there's a right way to win in baseball. Because there was a report today about the San Diego Padres basically taking out loans to make payroll for the roster that they've assembled. You didn't see this? This was from The Athletic today. No, I did not see this news. Financial times are not necessarily great as far as liquid cash goes. Well, the Padres, the San Diego Padres. were one of the teams affected by the RSN breakdown, I believe. So that's really a factor in that. that they could not have predicted when they signed many of these contracts. So I, I do kind of think there just isn't an easy approach to this. You know, Luca was like, do you think Corbin Carroll will be on the Diamondbacks forever? And I was like, that's how this goes. Like the team control, the more that I think about it, an organization should do everything they humanly can to develop really good young hitting prospects. And I, I do actually, I don't, I actually do not think that there are organizations that are doing as much as they could to just constantly be developing the Mariners should find they should trade all of this young pitching and try to find team controlled hitting prospects because a player like Julio a player like Corbin Carroll obviously like Corbin Carroll was drafted very high in the draft but when you get a player like that having them under team control for all of these seasons is the most valuable thing maybe in sports that you could have but Having that a player like that for all of those seasons, controlling the entire prime of a player more so than any other sport that you could do with baseball for how long that team control lasts for. And even being able to basically like leverage that into longer term contracts, which teams have started to do. I think teams should be doing everything in their human ability to find players like that to just constantly be looking for prospects. Well, I'm pretty sure that one thing that would be in your human ability is to not sign players that would force you to give up comp draft picks. I don't know if no, they still that's, do that. No, that's what I'm saying. Honestly, I think the the only way for sustained success is maybe not signing players, free agents when they're 30 plus, but just it's it's a process that had to have happened five years ago, though. You know what I mean? Like, it's something that the Mariners can start doing right now if they wanted to. But the more that I think about it, having those young players under team control is so extraordinarily valuable. Maybe there are, I don't know whether the compensation for draft picks still exists. I'd have to, I have to research that a little bit more. Uh, by the way, the Sacramento Kings did win the title back in Rochester is the Rochester Royals. So they are not on the list. And somehow I miscounted along the way. There's 10 teams that have never won the NBA championship. So one third of the week. Anyway, those, those are just some general baseball thoughts. All right. Now the Kraken. We snapped the <laughs> two game losing streak Monday in Tampa Bay. With Chris in attendance prior to the start of the National Lawn Bowling Championships, winning 4-3 in overtime off a Jared McCann score. It was the third overtime session during the four-game road trip for the Kraken, who won the opener in Detroit that way and then lost at Carolina. Their loss at Florida also came by one goal, so a very competitive road trip uh, for the Kraken that went 2-2. Two two. 
The possession stats had slipped for the Kraken entering Monday's game to below average, but Hockey Reference's expected goals model had this had them as positive. I like that I wrote the Sounders as positive because I'm so used to thinking XG and and soccer. Uh, Kraken, after a few days off, back home this week to host Nashville and Calgary. All right. Well, speaking of the Sounders, they opened their their first best of three series in franchise <laughs> history. They have never won a best. Of, they won the MLS Cup, but never a best of three series. You see, it's a special moment against FC Dallas on Monday Nobody's night. Nobody's approaching it from that perspective. Yeah, getting a, I mean, historic <laughs> stuff here. Getting a two nothing win. Uh, Albert Rushnak opened the scoring by converting a penalty won by Christian Roldan in the 43rd minute. Sounders had already forced Dallas keeper Martin Paz into a pair of diving saves. Jordan Morris doubled the lead in the 74th minute, heading home a terrific cross from Nuhu. Sounders had a robust 2.2 expected goals for this in this one to 1.3 for Dallas. Uh, Notably, 21-year-old young designated player Alan Velasco left early in the 18th minute due to injury. Velasco started 27 of 28 matches during the regular season, scoring four goals and adding four assists. Game two will be Saturday in Dallas as the Sounders go for the unprecedented sweep. On their side of the bracket, LAFC beat Vancouver (laughs) 5-2 in a high-scoring game one. will also go for the sweep in British Columbia on Sunday. Also, my favorite thing about this game is that Jamal Adams did the scarves up a day after. I don't know whether this was pre-planned or if it was a reaction to him uh, successfully heading an assist to uh, Julian Love for the interception that set up the Seahawks winning touchdown on Sunday. That was such an awesome play, by the way. It was. I agree. Uh, I, I'm i very fascinated by that, too. I feel like they just pulled him in to do it. But no, they must have had it lined up. I, I don't, don't know. know. It's, it's a little to say. Fate. It's a little fate right there. Uh, but it was an I I honestly cannot think of any play in NFL history that I remember. Obviously, passes have bounced off players' helmets for interceptions. Right. But where it almost it wasn't intentional necessarily, but it looked like a header. I mean, it, yeah, he he redirected it. So <laughs> that that was that was an incredible play. I want to say. I just pulled up from from your your friends at ESPN.com the two early 2024 MLB power rankings. Oh, hello. Where do you think the Mariners rank on there? Seventh. Eighth. So really not bad. A not bad 2024 power rankings. It's funny because the power rankings kind of are roasting the Mariners, but then at the same time, like, have them eighth overall. You know what I mean? Like, they're talking about Jerry DePoto's quote in an all time foot in his mouth moment, talking at the 54% doing the fan base a favor. Uh, but then it talks about the rotation, young rotation, uh, too many whiffs to make a deep playoff run. If they get in, what do they need to win? Oh, 56% I mean, of their games, a left-handed power hitting DH would be nice. Know anybody who fits the bill. I mean, that's a little silly given where, where do the Diamondbacks rank on this 11th? Like, 11th. And it turns out, Baseball playoffs are super random. So no, I don't I mean, know that, that, that strikeouts kind of in particular are going to prevent is, success. If you could right now be a, uh, if you had to to cheer for the future of one of those two teams, the Diamondbacks just lost in the World Series, and you would still probably prefer the Mariners' future. Yeah. These things also change so extraordinarily. I mean, the Mariners were a better team than the Diamondbacks this season. <laughs> they just were. Now, in fairness to the Diamondbacks, uh, 
they were in a in a league where uh, they got to play the A's a lot, but you know, you just got to get in. There, if there's, there's anything, if there's anything, the, the Jerry Depoto's right. The but... A's a lot, but they also had to play the Astros and the Rangers a lot. Does that make sense? And, and if you had to look at this and you had to say, but, after but I think part of the reason that the AL had such a collective better record than the NL was the bottom of the AL, not just sure. the strength of the AL. But if if you were to the Mariners, the two best teams in all of baseball after the playoffs, if you were to say just objectively speaking, these are the best teams, you would probably say it was the Astros and the Rangers, right? Their series more or less determined who would win the World Series. That's probably true. It probably uh, goes something he, like Astros, Rangers, and then Dodgers, Phillies, somebody in that range. Mariners are tied for the tenth best odds of winning the 2024 World Series at Caesar Sportsbook by William Hill, tied with, of course, the Diamondbacks, the, the San Diego Padres. Oh, okay. Shouts Our to the hated veteran rival, the San Diego Padres. The Diamondbacks are well back; they're at plus 3,300. So the Mariners have better odds of winning. I do feel like there is a little bit of baked-in Shohei odds, and I also think the money stuff that we saw from the Padres probably pulls them out of the Shohei race. One would hope. One would certainly hope. I do I do think that the Shohei conversation is look, we'll see. I'm excited that we're gonna be talking about this pretty soon. The hot stove league is in like what oh, like yeah. four or six weeks, something like that. Sure, but less than that, I think. It's it feels like it's probably something like Dodgers, Mariners, Giants. I, I assume that the Yankees Red Sox teams like that will be in the mix, but I, it feels to me like, given being from Japan, being on the West Coast makes a little bit more sense. Your free agency starts November 6th. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. So players don't really sign until when are the winter meetings? Uh, it's going to require some more, some loading up one of these here. Winter meetings are December 4th through 7th. Okay. That, that I feel like is when. That's that's when we're on show. Hey, watch. Yeah, mark your calendar. <laughs> we're on show. Hey, watch. Let's look. Maybe the Huskies will hire Chris Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that would mean Kalen DeBoer has gone back to his alma mater, not his alma mater. <laughs> I guess it's where he came to came from. So he's he's taking the Fresno State job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Indiana. <laughs> Indiana. All right. Well, speaking of looking at successful teams, at least during the regular season from San Diego, well, rain on Sunday faces the San Diego wave, the hated rival San Diego wave. I mean, this is just intense in the NWSL semifinals. After finishing third in the NWSL in their first year of existence and losing in the NWSL Cup semifinal stage a year ago, just like the rain, the Wave captured the NWSL Shield in year two or the top seed entering the semifinals. They had a plus nine goal differential, second to Portland's plus 10, tied for second in both goals scored and goals allowed. 
Alex Morgan wasn't quite as dominant this season in attack, scoring seven goals, did have five assists, ranking second behind Portland's Sophia Smith in combined goals and assists. She was complimented by Jaden Shaw, who turned 19 in October, had six goals and three assists in her first full NWSL campaign. Shaw also scored her first international goal in Sunday's 3-0 U.S. Women's National Team win over Columbia that was played at Snapdragon Stadium in San Diego, just like this one will be. USWNT defender Naomi Gurma anchors the back line is a finalist for NWSL MVP. So the the rain finally snapped their losing streak in knockout stage games in general, but the semifinals curse is still intact. That's, of course, where they lost in the NWSL Challenge Cup earlier this year, last year. Last year's NWSL Cup playoffs uh, is the top seed that year. Uh, we'll see if they can get a different result this time around and make it back to the NWSL Cup final. All right. A bit of other rain news. Meg Linehan of The Athletic reported Friday that Laura Harvey is one of three candidates known to be on U.S. soccer's shortlist for next head coach of the U.S. WNT with uh, those three known candidates apparently atop the list. So it doesn't necessarily sound like she's the top choice, but uh, very much in the mix as we expected to replace Latko Andonovsky, her who's another former OL Reign head coach. All right, WNBA news: the draft lottery is set Hello. for Sunday, December tenth, between the ESPN doubleheader featuring oh. South Carolina and UConn. We're gonna have we're at Shohei watch is before then. <laughs> we have to wait until December tenth. I'm ready for it right now. God, you know what happened the last time Shohei was a free agent, right? What happened? Dead court the, the biggest week in Seattle sports history. That was that week? That was that week, yeah. Holy, wow. <laughs> Who are the UW's big, UW basketball's big non-conference games this year? Are there any? They play Gonzaga. Okay. They're going to beat Gonzaga, and then Shohei's going to sign with somebody else. When is that Gonzaga game? Is it does it fall during that week? It would be really <laughs> remarkable if all this stuff fell during that same week. The Gonzaga game is Saturday, December 9th. Wow. <laughs> there you so go. There's, there's a chance we're setting this up for the biggest weekend. And who did the Seahawks have around there? They have a big game too. I believe that's during the stretch where they're playing all the good teams in it must be the Niners in the NFC. Two, right? So one would think that uh, they must have. Oh a big game. my God! At 49ers, December 10th. Wow, boy! Just mark your freaking calendars, right? Oh boy! We've got Shohei watch. We've got the WNBA draft lottery. Seahawks at Niners. Husky basketball against Gonzaga. Where is that one at? Is that here? Is that, that is here? Account? In Seattle, Washington, with a rejuvenated UW basketball team. Let's freaking go. If I recall correctly, this team didn't play in 2021. So I think this will be the first Gonzaga visit since 2019. So it's been a minute. I remember that. You and Katie got all excited about it. Gonzaga came into town, just beat the crap out of us. I think that was 2017, which was the... The year that you all got excited? Yeah. Okay. 2019. I don't. I don't know if my hopes were were as high in that one. Uh, some other WNBA news: the WNBA is not expanding to Portland. It has been widely reported. <laughs> I actually um, want there to be a team in Portland. <laughs> you're that much of an Oregon hater. Uh, 
Sources told Bill Orem of the Oregonian, who broke the news on Wednesday, that it was due to issues surrounding where the team would practice. But in a letter to Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, an advocate for bringing the WNBA to Portland, League Commissioner Kathy Engelbert said the concern was scheduled renovations to the Moda Center during the NBA offseason and WNBA season into future summers. Orm reported that surprised Blazers officials with the source telling him that team chair Jody Allen had agreed to delay those renovations needed before the Moda Center hosts the 2030 Women's Final Four. Until 2027, the team had a chance to begin play at Moda before being temporarily relocated likely to the adjacent Veterans Memorial Coliseum. I, where do we stand on this? I guess for, for if you're the perspective <laughs> of wanting... <laughs> the league to be as strong as possible. I feel like Portland is such a great place to expand to. I, I feel like there, there is a fan base that is so ripe and ready. I mean, we saw it with the Timbers in Portland. Look, they've got nothing else right after that UW loss or after that UW victory against Oregon, they're empty on the inside. After uh, the David trade. <laughs> I mean, but no, like in reality, I feel like Portland is, I know that they had a WNBA team prior. I do think that, now but they didn't the lose WNBA the WNBA team because of lack of interest. They lost the WNBA team because Paul Allen wasn't interested in owning it. And, and no Jody Allen up. is clearly interested in. Well, no, no, she is not because uh, the Blazers don't intend to own the WNBA team like the one awarded to the Warriors last month. The She's at, at least willing to have the conversation about delaying this, though, right? Who yeah. would the ownership group have been? The prospective owner was Kirk Brown, the founder of the company that became Zoom Info. Unclear, you know, whether. This affects his plans. Now, the thing I'll say is... What is Zoom info? Is that... I, Zoom? I don't know. It's just what it's in okay. all the stories. Maybe? Okay. Uh, so the WNBA intends to add two expansion teams in 2025, and that's where Portland would have fit in in that timeline. They are not going to be done expanding at that point. So I think one possible scenario here is... The Blazers need to hammer out their long-term lease agreement with the city of Portland for the Moda Center. Then they make those renovations, you know, possibly if they could move up the timeline, because Orem reported, number one, he reported that it would only affect one summer of the team's availability, even though it's two summers of renovations, because uh, perhaps the other stuff could be done while the team was still playing there. And then number two, that it was originally scheduled to start in 2026. But if they could move it up a year in 2025, maybe the team starts play in 2027 or, you know, okay. if it's only requires the one summer. So, so so there likely still will be a WNBA team within the next five years in Portland. As long as there's still, you know, this ownership group is still committed to bringing the WNBA there. I mean, one of the things that Kathy Engelbert did say to conclude this rather brief letter was... You know, basically, we still want to, you know, come to Portland after these issues are resolved. Where is the other team? So if they're going to expand in 2025 to two locations, one is in the Bay, right? Is that San Francisco or is that Oakland? What is nope. that? They will play in San Francisco at the Chase Center. They will practice in Oakland at the old Warriors practice facility. Okay. What is the other location? Is that... Spe We'll see. Speculatively to, speaking, what Toronto and Denver were probably the strongest contenders of the teams that didn't seem like they were going to get picked in 2025. Uh, there was some reporting that the the issues were on the Toronto end rather than on the WNBA end. So, you know, whether that can be resolved, we'll see. Uh, but I mean, Toronto makes a lot of sense, right? There aren't the same amount of professional sports franchises there. I'm, 
without a as football m- team. Or- and as much as like I obviously want the WNBA to come to Portland, I think it would be a really fun rivalry. It would be great to have a second place within driving distance to cover games. Like Toronto is the market for the WNBA because you get all of Canada. Uh, there was a sellout crowd for an exhibition uh, WNBA preseason game there this year. Like the fan base is a hundred percent ready. The issues are strictly again on the ownership side and then the logistics of traveling to Canada. If you're traveling commercial and not flying charters. Well, they're going to be flying charters. That's that's happening. It will happen eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel that... like Denver also is, has Denver ever had a WNBA team? They never have, right? They have not. No, it seems to me like Denver is a pretty strong basketball town has had the women's final four. Uh, is is Portland will in 2030. Yeah, I think the, the question there was the venue for where the team would play. They can't play at the Pepsi Center? I don't know if they can't play at the Pepsi Center. They were the the report is that they were not being, you know, told that the team would play at the Pepsi Center. Okay. They preferred Coke instead. Um the I think they were gonna play at the University of Denver campus was the the plan. I, I do feel like Denver though is like I think it is also going to be a strong women's basketball market. And that's what I want ultimately for the WNBA is just to get into these strong markets and then put a pause for a second. Like get to a place where they're at what are they at right? What is the number right now? 12? Yep. Get to like 18 cities or something like that. 18, 20 cities. What what MLS has done has obviously gone too far. And there's going to be within the next 10 years, I would not be surprised if there's contraction in MLS. Uh I mean, I suppose that would be where you'd potentially have an opportunity for promotion and relegation. It would uh, be great if that was did the you, case. Did you know that San Diego is getting an MLS team? Are they? I learned that when I was reading about Snapdragon Stadium you, you in preparation. You cannot this. keep track of where MLS teams it's are true. <laughs> Just name a city, right? They have to replace that Rochester championship that the Kings won. MLS team. Uh but I do feel like Denver, Toronto, Portland are all cities that are going to be really strong WNBA cities and have those fan bases right away and be very engaged. So uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I agree. Maybe it wasn't University of Denver. Their gym is 2,500. So let me double check. Not sure on that one, but uh, all right. You know, women's basketball played an exhibition Monday against Seattle Pacific. No information is available about, about this one, <laughs> except one tweet that, where I saw that said they looked good. There That's we go. literally all I can find about it. <laughs> it is not on their website. They did not post anything on social media. It's perplexing. Uh, the Huskies will open the season, regular season, on Monday as part of the doubleheader with the men. They're hosting Sacramento State, which won the Big Sky last year for the first time in program history, earning a number 13 seed in the NCAA tournament before losing to UCLA. That came under longtime Oregon State and Oregon assistant Mark Campbell, who subsequently took the TCU job and was replaced by BYU assistant Aaron Kalhoff. You know, men's basketball, there was ample information about their exhibition. A 103-58 win over St. Martin's. Take that, St. Martin's. Hello. He's led 56-26 at halftime. We are so back. Uh, So they started the expected group that we've talked about, with the exception of Braxton Mia, who did not play due to an ankle injury. Wilhelm Breidenbach replaced him in the starting five. Yes, he did. Playing limited minutes in his first game in 11 months after an ACL tear last December. The other four starters... We're all fifth-year senior transfers. 
Paul Mulcahy and Severe Wheeler at guard, Moses Wood and Keon Brooks Jr. at forward. The bench rotation was Corin Johnson and Nate Calmeze at guard, with Anthony Holland and Christian King at forward. Freshman Wesley Yates III was also a DNP due to an undisclosed issue. He didn't play during the Huskies' two games in Europe this summer, so you know, hope that's not a, a, a serious injury that will affect his availability over the course of this season. Brooks had 22 points on 10 of 12, shooting to lead the way, while Corin Johnson scored 21 off the bench, making five three-pointers. Breidenbach had a double-double of 11 yes. points and 12 boards to go with four blocks. Oh, free Breidenbach. We need some kind of name for the Breidenbach fan club. Okay. <laughs> Breidenbachers? Is, yeah, that sounds good. Thrillhelm, is that okay? <laughs> This is going to be great. Uh, Nate Calmeze had 14. Thrillhub Breidenbach is the most college basketball player of all of the college basketball players, right? He should be in college forever now that you could basically have unlimited years of eligibility. Let's get this man some NIL money and keep him in Seattle. This is going to be a college basketball powerhouse around Thrillhub Breidenbach. You're telling me he's not. He got you back into Utah men's basketball. Oh, I, I, this team is good. I swear to God, I think this team is making the NCAA tournament. All of the, all of the Pac-12 preseason rankings, I think they do not understand how deep and experienced this UW team is, but also having those two big men, like to have, to be able to be, and we'll see what health looks like, et cetera, to be foul out proof to a certain extent is basically the most important thing that you can have in college basketball. And if they have both of those players, healthy Braxton Mia and Frank Kepnon plus Wilhelm Breidenbach, like I, I think they are going to, and, and if there's any sort of offense at all, I think they are going to win games in the pac 12 and do well in the non-conference. They're also quite experienced overall like okay. this i think I, I mean, mia is a i don't know if he's a fifth year guy but i think he might be too they might start all fifth year seniors there are three <laughs> things that matter as far as i can tell in college basketball like the playmaking is not as huge of a deal as it is, is in the nba it is size depth of big big men and experience those are things that matter in college basketball playmaking is slightly less important Shooting and, does still matter. And shooting. That was the other thing that I was going to say. Uh, and it seems like maybe the shooting is a little bit better. But also, it's kind of luck. There's still a little bit of three-point shooting luck. Well, that was the one place they didn't do well. They shot 13 of 38 on threes. But mm-hmm. uh, Moses Wood went two of eight. He's likely to shoot much better than that. Uh, Severe Severe Wheeler handed out a game-high seven assists. Paul Mulcahy had five. So pretty good distribution. I mean, essentially, the Huskies are starting two point guards and Corin Johnson and Nate Calmese also are, you know, experienced ball handlers off the bench. So they've got they've got that playmaking element uh, this season as well. I'm I'm excited for this. This is literally in the same way that I've been so in on this Husky football season for obvious reasons. I am more in on this Husky basketball season than I have been in so many years. I feel like I have a better sense of, even though a lot of the players are new, like they're bringing back a handful of players and that hasn't happened that much. The two big men coming back is pretty huge. Yep. I, I do think that this can be a team that people can rally around a little bit. And Mia is only a fourth year junior. So he's the uh, the baby of the starting five. There we go. Uh, the Huskies open the season next Monday against Bellarmine. Do you, do you care to guess what state Bellarmine Not is Federal Way. From? Okay. Uh, well, that's the the high school is in Tacoma. Is it in Tacoma? Yeah, I guess I knew that. 
Let me go back and make sure I have I, I, perso- I personally consider Federal Way Park Tacoma now <laughs> after that ATC shirt with Wild Waves on it. Okay, fair. North Tacoma. Uh, okay, Bellarmine College. Yep. I'm going to guess I... that they are in Illinois. No. Connecticut? Nope. All right. I... The fact that you ju- guessed Illinois and Connecticut indicates how uncertain it is. I remembered Tennessee, but... Uh... Uh, maybe maybe remembering Belmont, uh, they are actually in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, Bellarmine. okay. They're probably the number one college there for college basketball, right? Well, are you are you 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 think you're joking? But are you aware of what's going on at Louisville? No, what's going on at Louisville? They lost to a D two school. They lost their Whoa. exhibition game. They lost to St. Martin's. It is it is rough times. Who in coaches Louisville, Louisville now? Uh, Kenny Payne. Former NBA player. Last year, Louisville finished the season four and twenty-eight. They were ranked lower in Ken Palm than Bellarmine was, and they lost at home 67-66 to Bellarmine in their season. Did they really? Yeah. Louisville was four and twenty-eight last year. Four and twenty-eight. This is why we need relegation. They somehow did beat Clemson. I don't know how that's possible that that was one of their two lo- two wins. Is Clemson basketball good though? This isn't football. Dabo Swinney. This isn't Dabo Swinney in any year before the last two years. Uh, Clemson like, was an NIT team, but they had an NBA draft pick. Someone who was mentioned who? on this podcast this this really? very podcast last week. Yeah, we'll see if I remember him. <laughs> <laughs> who is that? Uh, Hunter Tyson. Who is the most famous Clemson basketball alum? Uh, one of the, I think it's Horace Grant. Okay. Uh, Harvey went to Oklahoma. So I think it's he's not exactly a like a famous. rich college basketball history at Clemson. No, I wouldn't say that, but they went 14 and six in the ACC last year. And one of those losses was to Louisville. So that's pretty shocking. That was one of the more shocking outcomes all season. Okay. I would say when you lost at home to Bellarmine. That is, I, that is shocking how bad Louisville is. Uh, the Knights are entering their fourth year as a Division One program in the Atlantic Sun Conference. They went 15 and 18 last year, nine and nine in conference play. Their their most standout feature: they were bottom ten in terms of pace in the country. Right. So we'll see if the Huskies Love can get out that. and run in this college one. basketball. <laughs> My God, I take back everything I said. Pro college basketball. Yeah, it's easy to love college basketball if you don't actually have to watch. I just thinking basketball. about it. The, the feeling of, I mean, I look, do I watch WNBA? I have a lot of thoughts on it, but the games, that's, well, I'm not paying. I just pay attention to the transact. There's not as much transact in college. I mean, there is actually. Uh, they they turn sure over the roster a lot. Are you sure about that? The, the rumors are not as interesting. Yeah. Well, because nobody knows who the players are. I mean, like who the players are post transact. Correct. I know who the players are because I have watched Rutgers and seen Paul Mulcahy. So you knew about come Wilhelm Breidenbach before he committed I, here or signed here. I I watched Wilhelm Breidenbach play about two minutes of basketball last season, and let me tell you, it was burned into my memory. <laughs> he played I in was, the NCAA tournament, right? I don't think Nebraska was that good. No. Oh, he was on. I thought he was on West Virginia for some reason. No. no. It just seems like he would have played at West Virginia. <laughs> I mean, Nebraska, too. I he was listening to Bright Eyes, as well, I believe we discussed on this podcast, right? Yeah, so I watched I watched Nebraska literally one time last season, and I remembered Wilhelm Breidenbach. There we go. Uh, I wanted to issue a correction also. I was talking about how many listeners we had 
throughout the Midwest. And I said, Omaha, Nebraska, but not Lincoln, Nebraska. And I'm told there's a difference between those. <laughs> oh, wow. That's even going to make Jimmer angrier. You put it I, that way. <laughs> the also remarkable thing is we did not get a single email from the Renton listener. No, no, they literally do not exist. All right, are we doing Seahawks and wrapping up with Huskies? Uh, I mean, I'm more interested in talking about uh, in the same way that Federal Way is part of Tacoma, Lincoln is part of Omaha. <laughs> <laughs> Enumclaw is obviously part of Tacoma now because of Enumclaw. Yes, yeah. That's East Tacoma. I want to say you should take all this out, <laughs> all of this out of the podcast. No, there's nothing that is going to convince me to keep it in more than you saying to take it all of it out. <laughs> all right. Well, you you didn't take a stand there, so I'm I'm making the executive decision. We're we're saving the Huskies. You're keeping them in the hammer. Okay. Is they are still number five in the uh, the rankings. <sighs> so the trade deadline came and passed. They lead the NFC West, but don't get don't get the hammer. You got to again. To, you got to lead a lot more than the NFC West to compare to number five in college football. Okay. The Seahawks aren't the fifth best team in the NFL. Even with the uh, the trade for Leonard Williams. So the the some trade other trades happened. Some other trades act happened before the trade deadline on Tuesday. And most notably, the San Francisco 49ers, whose three-game losing streak opened the door for the Seahawks to fancy themselves contenders, added Chase Young for a third, a third round. themselves contenders. A third round cop pick. That value made the Leonard Williams trade look much worse by comparison. Uh-huh. Do you not agree? No, I, I totally even, agree. No, yeah, of I, course you agree. You were I, much more negative about the Williams trade than I was even. I don't know if I was much more negative about the Williams trade. I don't know. I, I'm so excited about Leonard Williams. I actually have been a fan of Leonard Williams on his own. Just like see, when he was on the Giants, he definitely disrupted the Seahawks in a handful of games. And two and a half I was sacks like, in his three games against the Seahawks. And three games against the Seahawks in the last three or four years or whatever it was. I feel like I've, I have written about him in the notes so many times over the years. Every time we played them and every time I've watched them play, I was like, that dude is a dude. You know what I mean? Like Leonard Williams is somebody who is a disrupting force in the inside, or at least has been when we've seen him play. So I'm excited about having Leonard Williams on the team, having him against the Ravens this weekend. Like the excitement that the Seahawks feel about Leonard Williams, I am feeling the same excitement about Leonard Williams. And there's a reality to this that whether the process is good or bad, it literally doesn't matter. Nobody is consulting with me about it. It doesn't change anything about it. You could have the worst process in the entire world and me being mad about it or any fan being mad about it just does not change anything. So I think what we can do is just be excited about Leonard Williams and that's it. By the way, I short sold him three and a half sacks in the three games against the Seahawks since 2020. That said, I I do think that the Seahawks may be I don't want to say that they misread the market necessarily because there's a world that the Giants just don't trade Leonard Williams and they may not have accepted a third round comp pick. And I also am not a hundred percent convinced that I think the Seahawks probably, if they don't trade for Leonard Williams and there's the possibility of chase young for a third round pick the next day, I think there's a chance that they make that trade. I do think there's a reality that the Seahawks 
maybe preferred the inside pass rush, the three. Oh, tech I pass think they unquestionably could prefer Leonard Williams. At the same time, I also think there's a fan perspective that will just reinforce exactly whatever the team did and say, that's it. The team prefers inside pass rush. Therefore, it is better. But it's that, like what we've talked about with whatever the team believes. That's our philosophy. That that I don't know if is necessarily the right way to approach it. But also, we don't actually know, right? Like, we're not super aware that because the the where does uh, Josh Uche from the Patriots play? Is he a little bit more edge or is he more inside? We're asking a lot because the th- there was a conversation that the Uche's an edge rusher, and so that that to me makes me think. I'm not a hundred percent convinced. I think I think they liked Leonard Williams. I think that they saw Leonard Williams and how disruptive he was against the Seahawks, and they were excited about that. He's also just a good player, so that's awesome. It doesn't change the fact that they did they did pay the most for an edge rusher of any team. The worst trade that happened at this trade deadline was the Chicago Bears going and trading for Montez Sweat because all. There were three edge rushers or three pass rushers or whatever that were traded for. Sweat got the most value. Second round pick also, but that's the Chicago Bears second round pick. And that is a radically different second round pick than whatever the Seahawks will be. The Seahawks trade a second round pick for Leonard Williams, probably closer in the 50-60 range. And the Niners pay a third round comp pick closer to the pick 100 range, right? For Chase Young. After pick 100, I think, in the hundreds, yes. So th- these are three different things. At the same time, any time that you are trading for a player, the Bears to me is obviously the worst of those trades because the Bears are not competing this year. The value that they're getting from Montez Sweat this season is more or less irrelevant. They are paying a high second round pick for the privilege of paying Montez Sweat. And that to me is always the wrong process in the same way that I think the Niners are basically just taking a flyer on Chase Young. They're like, this is a third round comp pick. It's not a huge investment. If Chase Young is amazing, maybe we bring him back. It still makes me a little bit nervous, though. Like if if I was them, as far as that process goes, anytime that you are paying a pick for the privilege to to pay someone, you are doing something wrong unless they are an elite, elite level talent at an extraordinarily valuable position. But, but they that's their choice to make independent of whether they make this trade. They... They're choosing they between themselves. the potential of a comp pick or re-signing him. That's a, but they they made this trade like giving up a third round pick just to rent Chase Young for the rest of the season is a completely reasonable value. And the other part of this that affects the Seahawks is, you know, as we talked about, the Seahawks made this move presumably in part because they you know moved ahead of the Niners in the NFC West standings with that three game losing streak for San Francisco. I don't well, guess what San Francisco looks stronger game. with Chase Young. I, I'm sure that the Niners probably are stronger with Chase Young. Chase Young's PFF grades have been very, very solid this year. Like, it doesn't seem like there's a huge drop-off for Chase Young. The issue is just health. That's it with Chase Young. I think if if we were in an alternate world where the Seahawks traded a second-round pick for Chase Young, we are all so fucking excited about Chase Young. And I think that's the piece that, like, we're all very excited about Leonard Williams, but we could have made the exact same trade for Chase Young and been so excited about it and that to me is the piece where it's like it was it was just a better trade like that's it there it was a better trade they they're not picking up the salary and that was the thing that you argued was basically the seahawks are not paying leonard williams but the the 49ers are also not picking up chase young's salary they got the same deal out of it didn't they nothing i didn't see that 
I, I believe that's the case. Let me let me it's do some research into that. I don't know. Like it does it doesn't necessarily make the Leonard Williams trade worse just because somebody else got a slightly better deal for a different player. It doesn't change. The Leonard Williams deal should be judged unto the Leonard Williams deal. And it's not necessarily great value, but they're getting a good player. And maybe they will compete this year. Yeah, Chase Young is making the minimum the rest of the season. Or maybe a slight more he's one million the rest of the season. So it's it's a good trade that the Niners made. But like Chase Young also might get injured. The Niners might come into Seattle with two more losses by the time that they play each other on Thanksgiving Day. Like, I don't think it radically changes the future of the Niners making that trade. It doesn't make me more or less scared of the Niners. I think they're a good team. They're obviously a good team. And it doesn't change the Leonard Williams trade because there's a reality that... I think it does because, again, you're making that trade in part because of the opportunity you have now. And the opportunity you have... The 49ers and Seahawks both improve... That's that's the Niners better will for... not improve for the rest of the season. You know the what I mean? Like the Seahawks both improve. That's still good for the Seahawks because the rest of the NFC exists. But again, I think that 49ers opening was a big part of their decision, and it looks a little less open today than it did on Monday. I I think you're probably overjudging both of these players and their impact on that's like fair. But again, that's the argument division. for the Leonard Williams trade is that he's going to make that impact. So if you don't think he's going to make that kind of impact, it's already fallen flat on its face. So Yeah, we've already talked about this. <laughs> I do think that. I, I think there's almost no players. I mean, you mentioned Tyler Lockett. Like I said, if the Seahawks traded Tyler Lockett for a second-round pick, do I think that their playoff odds would significantly decrease? Yes. Like, I don't know if I believe that. We saw them play a game without DK Metcalf. And at no point during that game were we like, whoa, really wish they had DK Metcalf. Missing a single game is a large percentage of an NFL season. Who did they play that game against? The Cardinals. Yeah. I mean, it's a little different if they're playing that game against a good team. Do you think the odds of the Seahawks winning at Baltimore would be materially different without Tyler Lockett? I really do not. I do not think that. I, I don't think that any... I don't think any single wide receiver on the Seahawks roster makes that huge of a difference. We saw it. If you look at the Minnesota Vikings, right? What were our, our expectations about them without Justin Jefferson? Was it to go and beat the 49ers or did somebody oh. else just, just get those receptions? I mean, Jordan Addison certainly stepped up to TJ Hawkinson and Jordan Addison. Like, I also think the the Vikings thing, I just feel like the relationship with Kirk Cousins is so wild that people were just like devastated about Kirk. <laughs> I was like, well, I feel like this fan base might have kind of hated Kirk Cousins for many years. And I mean, the thing injured. I was thinking about is the where the Seahawks are now right now with Geno Smith, where it feels like the local media is like so down on Geno Smith. And maybe I'm o- overjudging the influence of Matt Kelkin's columns in the Seattle Times, but that's how it feels. And then, like, you see all these national writers talking about, like, how amazing Geno Smith is playing. And he's kind of in that Kirk Cousins zone of, like, is he Both good enough to win you a Super time. Bowl? Probably not. Could it get a hell of a lot worse? Boy, it sure could. Yes. So, uh, Geno Smith, by the way, currently not on target to make any of the uh, escalators in his contract other than potentially the 10 game 10 wins and make the playoffs 
Can you imagine cheering for that? <laughs> as a fan? No, I'm not saying that you are by mentioning it, but can you imagine as a fan being like, yeah, woo, save a little bit of money, Seahawks? I mean, no, but also like if he had escalated his contract by 15 million, their their cap troubles in 2024 would be even more considerable. Uh, right, should, we, should we talk about Sunday? I, I, all that said, I am so excited to see Leonard Williams on this team. And I, I do not think that any individual interior defensive lineman makes more than a small percentage chance of victory. When we talk about percentage chance of victory, it's not going to be like, well, it would have been 36, but Leonard Williams is here. So it's 60%. All of these things aside from quarterbacks are small, small percentages. It is a large team. That's the point of football is that almost for most teams, no individual player matters all that much in the way that it's like with Chase Young being there. I'm not like, oh, the Niners are now they they are maybe maybe a half percent more scary than they were beforehand. Yeah, the uh, the the markets have responded to the trade by. Pushing the odds for this game up a little bit if they've moved it all in Baltimore's favor. So there you go. I think the markets are responding more to Baltimore. Like if you looked at overall Super Bowl odds, Seahawks and 49ers, what they were to begin the week and to end the week, I would guess that they are precisely the same. Probably, yes. So that would be an indicator of, of how much the markets think either of these players matter. And are they going to have an impact on the field? Of course they are. Are they going to have so much of an impact on the field individually that you could say that they influenced a victory or a playoff game? I think it's probably pretty unlikely because what matters is so many different players on the field, especially on a defensive line where you have a rotation of players. But it's always good to have more, more good players on the roster. Yes, and they will have more of an opportunity to rotate on the defensive line, which they were not able to do as much early in the season. Today, the Seahawks defense is better than it was on Sunday because of that. Sure. And I do, I do think that that is a, that is a factor and it, it is going to make everybody else on the defense better. And a draft pick today, three years from now, that second round draft pick could make, could make a bigger impact over a long period of time or whatever. Today, that second round draft pick is not going to affect the game against Baltimore. You know what I mean? It's not going to affect the game against San Francisco. Well, you should trade all your picks as the LA Rams current roster. I mean, they won a Super Bowl. Like, I don't, you know, you still don't, you still don't retroactively award them a Super Bowl. No, no, it's an asterisk Super Bowl, of course. But like (laughs) the, they did win a Super Bowl by this strategy. They're a worse team now for it. But like, you know, at least it's an ethos. That is true. Uh, The Baltimore Ravens are number one in DVOA. They are the new number one in defense, replacing the Browns, meaning two consecutive weeks, the Seahawks will have played the number one defense in the league. They're number four on offense. They're plus 81 point differential, ranked second to the Bills, and they've faced a harder schedule. They finished last season fifth in DVOA, despite Lamar Jackson missing the last five games after an eight and four start. Healthy Lamar is completing a career-high 70.5% of his passes, much better than the 66% that he completed during his MVP season for 7.8 yards per attempt, which matches his average that year. No longer as dominant a run threat, his 5.1 yards per carrier is lowest since his rookie season and his attempts are down too. He's just fifth in rushing EPA, according to QBR, which ranks him 12th overall. 
his best performance, he picked apart the Lions defense for 357 yards, three touchdowns in a 36, 38 to six blowout in week seven before throwing for a season low 157 yards and 5.8 yards per attempt against the Cardinals last Sunday. Rookie Zay Flowers, another one of these uh, first round wide receivers, uh, has immediately stepped in as Jackson's top target. He's catching 72% of his targets for 7.6 yards apiece. Tight end Mark Andrews is always a reliable option with a 71% catch rate and 8.8 yards per target. After that really committee for the Ravens, Odell Beckham Jr. has caught just 54% of his targets for 6.2 yards per target, was shut out on four targets Sunday, uh, left that game at one point due to injury, did not practice on Wednesday due to a shoulder injury. So we'll see whether he's on the field for this one, uh, but that unlikely to move the needle a lot. Baltimore number four in rush EPA per play. With J.K. Dobbins suffering another season-ending injury, this to his Achilles in Week 1, Gus Edwards has been the lead running back. That's another Ravens player who did not practice Wednesday uh, due to a toe injury, but you know, tough to tell this early in the week whether that will affect his availability. The Ravens' defense had been in the top 10 two of the last three seasons, including last year under new defensive coordinator Mike McDonald, but they're reaching new levels this year. They're still number two in EPA per play behind the Browns. Uh, those teams also rank one, two in drop back EPA. The one little bit of a weakness, the Ravens haven't been quite as strong against the run, but still rank in the top 10 there. They added old French Div in Clowney, who true to form hasn't flashed in terms of sacks with three and a half, but ranks ninth in pass rush win rate by ESPN analytics. Their fourth is a team in sack rate led by six and a half from Justin Matabuki who had 8.5 in three seasons coming into this year. Opponents are completing 61% of their passes, which is decent, but for a league low 8.9 yards per completion, producing easily the league's lowest net yards per attempt at 4.2. Like basically passing against Baltimore is netting as many yards per pass as running typically does, That's which is wild. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, they are below average in forcing turnovers thus far, despite a league-high five interceptions from safety Geno Stone. And notably, no Geno has ever picked off a Geno in NFL history. So wow. hopefully a streak that continues. That's maybe not something that you should have pointed out this week. Did I jinx it? I You might have. But you've been noting that no Geno has ever picked off a Geno. <laughs> not that there's that many of them. Geno Toretta did not play against any Genos, as far as I can tell. <laughs> All right, that's all I have as far as notes. I, I mean, they're obviously a terrifying team. You know, it's it's similar to what we talked about. I do think the Seahawks offense was, for a lot of the game, you look at those yards per play against the Browns, right? And I, the Browns defense is not as good as the Ravens defense has been, but... Well, no, it, no, it is. I mean, no, I mean, Baltimore no, no, jumped The Browns defense is not as good as the Ravens defense has been. I, the Ravens defense is a better defense than the Browns. They're in they're in the same tier without question. Which one's one and which one's two does not matter. And and the Ravens have done it against elite level offenses or very very high level offenses in a way that Cleveland hasn't necessarily. You know, you look at what they did against where do, where does Detroit rank offensively? Number 6 and Baltimore held them to 6 points. And and that to me is I think it was probably just a bad day for for them in general, but like that is just a terrifying thought. I think you have to look at in the same way that this was kind of true for the the Browns, the Indianapolis Colts. 
as somehow the team that that seems to do well against these opponents. Um, our friend Gardner Minshew, still even then, a lot of incompletions, but did put up enough yards, score enough points to win I mean, that he, game against he threw them. For five, they threw for 5.2 yards per attempt overall in that game. I don't know how that split out between Richardson and Minshew. Uh, the, I, I think it's one of those games where we really have, we're going to learn this defense, are they good enough to hang at this level? Offense is going to score points. I'm not, I don't think this is going to be a six point type performance. The offense is still ahead of where the defense is. They, they are a good offense at churning out those yards, at being able to score points against a defense that's only going to give you a little bit, right? I think they also will end up with some big plays because I don't think that there's almost any team that could stop the Seahawks from getting a handful of big plays with those receivers. Gino also throwing a beautiful deep ball right now. Uh, so, here's, here's another stat for you on the Ravens defense. The yes. highest yards per attempt they've allowed an opposing quarterback this year was Tennessee of all teams at 7.1. That's like league average. Their worst game in terms of pass defense was league average. The the Seahawks are going to, they are going to get a, uh, a big play in this game. Uh, offensive, are. offensive line is getting a little bit healthier. Gino should have a little bit more time to throw. Uh, they're getting close aside from right tackle of having a complete offensive line. Kind of liked what Jason Peters did too. in that game, you know, yeah. stone Forsyth, Jason Peters. I think they both looked, I was trying to watch Jason Peters generally when he was playing in the game, he looked pretty good. Um, even Charles cross, a pretty excellent game against miles Garrett. When you look at it in the totality of the game. Oh, without question. For and I don't think Garrett the Ravens only gets have... the quarterback once. And Gino wasn't like constantly under pressure or anything like no, that. No, I, I think it was a pretty, pretty impressive game overall for for the offense against Baltimore and for the offensive line in particular and Charles Cross. And the Ravens don't have any pass rusher who's at the same level as Miles Garrett. I actually think the Seahawks are going to move the ball a little bit in this game. It's going to be huge pressure on the secondary and on the linebackers of the Seahawks. And there were a few moments when, you know, overall Cleveland didn't run the ball that well, but it did feel like in that second half, like if Cleveland really wanted to, they could have run for a first down every single series. And I think that's what kind of scares me about it is Baltimore is just, they're one of those offense that's just going to churn through yards a bunch. Lamar might not be, might not be as good of a runner as he once was, but he's a better passer now and has better targets with Zay Flowers. He's going to hit Mark Andrews. Like this is going to be a huge amount of pressure on players like Jamal Adams, on players like Bobby Wagner. Uh, and I, And I think... This is the moment where that secondary, if they can have a big game and slow the Ravens down, it'll be truly emblematic for where they're at right now. Still TBD, though, a little bit, because there were some moments that Cleveland got through against them, and that was P.J. Walker, not Lamar Jackson playing nearly the best he's ever played. Uh, so I think that, to me, is the... I think the offense will score some points. I think this is going to be a higher-scoring game than people realize right now. Um but we'll then see. also, it's just getting into that routine of, that the Seahawks have continually found themselves in of, is it going to be 38 minutes that the Ravens have the ball and the Seahawks have to hit a couple of third downs to keep things moving? Because I do think it could be that kind of game again, where the Ravens are just gaining yards and yards and yards and yards and yards, five yards, six yards, seven yards, first down, first down, first down. Everybody's hitting hard. Devin Witherspoon's getting up, celebrating a big hit or whatever. But at the same time, it's an eight-yard play. And I think that's the thing that makes me nervous about this one. This is the hardest game that they've played all year. This might be the hardest game that they play all year. I mean, if if the Ravens stay number one in DVOA, it's on the road. So by definition, I suppose it would have to be. 
uh, you know, San Francisco or Philadelphia, I suppose, could wrest that title away by the time the Seahawks play them. But right now you would have to say so. Baltimore has been elite at preventing big plays, maybe not as dominant as you would think based on some of those stats. They've given up 23 plays of 20 plus yards this year. Uh, that is the fourth lowest rate in the league on a per game basis. I, I also, I mean, I like how health, the Ravens are, I think Ronnie Staley, I don't know if he's expected to play, uh, was on the injury report today, but both teams are pretty healthy. I like how healthy the Seahawks are right now. You know, they're missing, aside from Abe Lucas, almost no one. And I think the anticipation is they'll be missing almost no one for this game, which is, it's a unique thing. Their offense is very deep. And there are a lot of different ways to attack this. Uh, if Ken Walker can get open, I just hope that they don't get into a situation where they're they're trying to make third and makeables because that has not worked for the Seahawks. That to me is something that they need to be getting those yards. They need to be getting those first downs on first down, not trying to get four yards, four yards, make it on third and two. We need to see the offense happen early and on early downs. We need to have the motion, play action, and try to try to thaw the Ravens' defense that way. Um, but I do think the place that Leonard Williams is going to be important is I looked down at that game against the Browns and saw just how low energy the defense was in the second half and how gassed they were. And it was one of those things where I was like, this defense is done in a lot of ways, despite the fact, you know, like, they're getting the energy from the secondary, but when the Browns were running the ball against them and just kind of picking up yards a little bit easily, it's one of those things like Jaron Reed looked exhausted. The D-line without Chen and Nwosu, without Leonard Williams in the building, they looked exhausted in that game. They ended up making the big play in the end, but there's a lot of different outcomes. There are a lot of different, you know, across the Spider-Verse games that the Seahawks just lose that game. The Browns pick up one first down and the Seahawks lose. And we're talking about a different game. And that's kind of what it's what I was expecting at this in the second half of that game, seeing what they looked like. And that to me would make me nervous is that the Ravens can just grind them out and take that secondary out of the game, right? Not not need those plays. So that that would be the thing that would make me nervous about this, is it's like a 40, 40 minute like time of possession for the Ravens. They average like six yards per play or whatever they do a ton of it on the ground they don't throw many incompletions and they win this game like 28 to 17 or something 28 21 28 17 is more where my head's at i i think this ravens team matches up really well with the seahawks i think the run threat of the quarterback has always presented a challenge for them I don't know. They've got a lot of speed on the field now. They've got a lot of speed out there, but they had a lot of speed against Josh Dobbs, and he was running all over the place on them and having some offensive success at periods of time. I think they'll control Lamar. It's more like freaking Gus Edwards or whatever. That, that too. Yeah. I mean, if you're having to account for Lamar in the running game, that's it's part of what opens things up for running third guys. downs, just like every stupid game does. It's going to come down to third downs. Well, yes, that's not really a very interesting or useful analysis. And whether the Seahawks score touchdowns in the red zone, like they're going to get to the red zone. If they're able to score touchdowns, third downs, that's it. I don't know. It's a football game. It's what it always comes down to. But I mean, the Ravens are a better team and they're at home. Like the Seahawks are heavy underdogs no, I, in this game. I don't. It's also moving in that direction. We'll say the trend of teams who are right now, the Ravens are the team in the NFL, right? They are the trendiest team at the moment. 
things have not worked out so well for teams when they've been in that in that position this year in the NFL. I think the Ravens are very good. I wouldn't be shocked if the Seahawks were in it in the second half. If a couple of plays are made, if the offense scores touchdowns instead of field goals, like I, I actually more realistically think this is going to be a Pete Carroll game and it's going to be a one score game heading into the last like five minutes. Or they'll score a touchdown to make it a one score game or something or, like yeah, that. Something yeah. like that. I, think, I, think they, I think they old school Seahawks this one. Percentage chance of victory? 38%. 35%. I'm going to see like none of this. How can I watch the game on a plane without any sort of I I mean some planes allow streaming now, you know? So like with what though? foxsports.com sometimes I can never tell when I get the the game on Fox because sometimes I've been able to stream it and sometimes I can't. It's not going to be blacked out because I'm not going to be in Seattle. Correct. So I can go to the Xfinity app or whatever and try to stream there. Yeah. And if NFL, I think, I think you're going to go. Fo- I think you're going to go FoxSports.com. I don't think it's. I don't think you can stream it through Comcast. Okay, because Comcast does the in-home thing. Yes. Okay. I'm going to try it out. I'm going to use one of my. I have like the Alaska Airlines, you know, you only get so many. Uh, oh, the passes. Yeah. The full flight passes. Yeah. I yeah. think I've, I've been hoarding those. I may have to use them at some point. We're getting to the end of the year. I, I usually am like long flights is when I do it, but I know that I've got at least a few. At least I'm flying into and out of Burbank. That's all I can Same. say. Same. Oh, wait, when do you fly in? Tomorrow. Okay. Uh, when do you fly out? Monday. Okay. You're just, you're just a day longer on each side. I I am. Uh, let's talk about the reason that I'm heading to LA. Not the reason you're heading to LA, since sadly you will be unable to uh, attend the game, and we'll have to have to be streaming this one too. I guess I'm going to see so little football these next two weekends. It's kind of driving me crazy. You'd have football at USC this weekend, but first we should probably talk about last Saturday's 42-33 win over Stanford that uh, in conjunction with narrow, the narrow win over Arizona State the previous week, like the the angst is is high about UW football, I feel like, although it's, it's, it's lowered a bit since Saturday night. The angst? Yeah. You know, you I, know what sense an angst? Uh, I don't know if angst is the right word. It's just tension. It's, it's a little nervous. People are a little nervous. Angsty okay. is like that implies like anger or something. I, uh, All right, now I'm, I'm gonna have sure to look if... up the definition of angst. A feeling of deep anxiety or dread. Okay, all right, sure. Yeah. A feeling of persistent worry about something trivial. I I feel like that fits the bill here. Are we just counting football as trivial? Uh well everything's trivial. I agree that football is trivial. You're right. Ooh. Huh. I don't know. I don't know what you were working through right there. But... No, 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 no. The the light on my back patio just turned on. Okay. I'm trying to decide if maybe it's the switch switch. Maybe maybe it was a horror movie you watched. I'm a little, a little scared. Anyway, uh... I think I think people came out of it angsty about the the wrong thing. Frankly, on Saturday. What people, people came be, away. Tell me what people should be angsty about. 
people came away worried about the offense with kind of in an up and down performance by Michael Penix Jr. and the offense in general after not scoring an offensive touchdown against Arizona State. And granted, this was against a really horrible defense in Stanford, as we talked about last week coming into the pod. But like ultimately in part because of the fact that they had a 92-yard touchdown pass to Jalen Polk, like they averaged 7.1 yards per play. I I would have expected more certainly from the Huskies coming in or 7.2 yards per play. I would have expected more certainly coming into this, but you know, that's the teams that average more yards per play than them against Stanford or Oregon and USC, which are also elite offenses. So I don't think it ultimately was that bad of an offensive performance, even though there were some surprising drops and a few misses by Penix. But he was sick. Every time Michael Penix plays badly, he's sick after. I mean, in this case, he apparently was very visibly sick in his post-game interviews. To me, the angst is What about much the more... previous week? Was he also visibly sick? Like it was He was not visibly sick. It was after the fact that the coaches said that he was sick after the Arizona State game. I mean, I know that there's some sickness going around. That'd be a very long sickness. I don't know. Sometimes things stick with you. But the 5.9 yards per play the Huskies gave up on offense to Stanford was tied for their most this season. Those coming against Colorado and Sac State. And those are not defenses I think that you want to be compared with if you're UW. That was the issue, is that they were not good enough defensively in this game. That's why Stanford hung around. Full agree. I mean... Stanford maybe wins this game, to be honest. Like there's there's a world where if a fourth down pass is made or on a on that fourth down where like the wide receiver, receiver catches pass. the ball. Right. It's Stanford might win. Like there was a real fear that the Huskies lose this game at the end of that game. I don't know what would the I will be curious to look through and see what their chances of victory ever got to in this one on according to the ESPN model. I mean, I think if Stanford picks up that first down, that's a huge swing. I forget where in the context of that game it came. Uh, I guess they they dropped to sixty four percent at one point it was the lowest they were. How much time was left on the clock when you dropped that fourth down play? Well, it must have been right after this because that's when the Huskies <laughs> win probability up dramatically. Well, it's about the, the game was over. It's about the five minute mark, and they were down two, right? Correct. Stanford was down two. I I got to tell you, the chances of them getting in a field goal range if they pick up that play were probably pretty. Oh high. no, less than that. It was three minutes and twenty seconds. We're left. Yeah, up. no, there there is a world again talking talking about you know to, across the Penixverse. Like there is a world where. Stanford completes a wait. Did you pass. say they were close to field goal range? No, no, they weren't close to field goal range necessarily. But with that catch, where would they have been? Uh, probably about their own 40. There, and considering how badly the defense was playing, that Stanford could have gotten into field goal range on that drive is not an impossibility or anything like that. They might have gotten into field goal range, hit a field goal with a minute left, and Michael Penix is desperate to try to get down there, you know, to try to get down the field on the other end. Maybe it happens. I would still put my money on Michael Penix versus the Stanford defense. I was, I was very nervous about that. I mean, I left that play being like, we just dodged a freaking bullet. And I do hope that I, I hope that because of Penix illness or whatever, just strange things happening for a couple of weeks. I hope things are different, but let me tell you, my angst has not waned. 
if people are talking about angst waning. I think the offense is going to be fine. I think that USC is going to score a lot of points oh, against UW. Question. And I, mean, I also the, think you can't set the being, total to this for this game high enough, in my opinion. If we are being honest with ourselves, Seahawks, Huskies, our number one rivals are better than us right now. Like that is a reality. There is a victory. The Huskies won that game. The Seahawks have our number one in the NFC West. Apples to apples, I think both of those teams are better. Well, in this moment. yeah, without question. If if UW and Oregon were to play on a neutral site, who who can imagine when that such a game might occur? Win or where? Uh, Oregon would be favored in the game if it was played today. I I literally do not think I can stand that. I do <laughs> I do not know if I will live through that moment. And do you know? Wait, what weekend is the Pac-12 championship? Oh, it is my not that God. weekend. It's the oh. weekend before. It's December first. <gasps> okay. That was scary for a second, but uh, I, I, yes, I, I had already looked through that to consider it. You understand what I'm saying, though? Like the, the, the over under on this game is only six seventy six and a half, according to ESPN bet. I would, you know, I don't, know, I don't know if I want to urge anyone to gamble, but I feel like that's that's a solid over for me. It's a lot of points. Uh, anyway, that that was my takeaway from that game. Was I sure hope that Michael Penix was sick. And because the offense has to be damn near perfect for the rest of the season. There are a lot of hard games coming up. I know that Oregon State lost, but from this moment forward, Wazoo is obviously the easiest game left on the schedule. But like from this moment forward, things get real difficult. And maybe they look a slightly less difficult, you know, knowing that Cam Rising's not going to be there for Utah. I do think, I think Utah was probably slightly overrated. They probably are not as bad as the team that you, that Oregon crushed, but maybe Oregon is actually that good, and UW just got a little lucky. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's very plausible. I mean, the interesting thing is like, I think the FPI efficiency is still quite good. It's not certainly not bad, but it's it's getting close to where their FPI was coming into the season. Like they're down to ninth now. Oregon is number two in the country in FPI <sighs> efficiency. So it has to turn around this week. This has to be the week. If it's going to turn around, it has to turn around this week. This is a great opportunity against a very good USC team. Tell us about USC. Let's talk first about the Huskies health status. There's not much clarity. I wrote on Monday. It's still true. Uh, Jalen McMillan lasted longer than he did against Oregon, but again, left the game due to injury. Hasn't finished a game since week two. Giles Jackson did not play due to his ankle injury, and uh, they're still considering a possible redshirt season for him. Jeremy Bernard was able to return and see extended action as the number three receiver with Roma Dunze and Jalen Polk playing virtually every snap. Uh, That was very important. Safeties Asa Turner, Cam Fabiculanin, and Vince Nunley all sat out, leaving Mikel Estine alongside Dom Hampton uh, basically the entire game. Sounds like Fabiculanin the most likely to return this week. Weirdly little detail on Asa Turner's status. I would love to see him, you know, at safety in this game. Massive, massive deal. Because I think that's the biggest point that Oregon exposed in the fourth quarter of that game is you could throw deep on this team. And Stanford exposed it repeatedly as well. No, that's what I'm saying. Oregon exposed it first. Stanford took advantage of it. But you take out Asa Turner and Cameron Fabiculanen, and this it is every deep ball that a team throws up is scary between pass interference and just making the catch. Correct. 
Uh, Tuli Leitulasanoa traveled to the Stanford game, but strictly in case of emergency, sounds like he might be able to play Saturday, which also would be big in terms of their run defense. Uh, we should also mention before we get to USC, a couple of news items. Uh, the Huskies were ranked number five in the first college football playoff rankings. Where you are in the first college football playoff rankings does not actually tell you well, it's almost anything about your playoff chances. There's another source of angst. Uh, it was most extreme back in 2016. I think they were, they might've been sixth in the first ranking. I remember it came out the week before I traveled to the Cal game, which oddly was the same first weekend of November back then. Uh, and then everyone's like, oh man, what if, you know, all these teams went out and then like three of the teams lost for, you know, it didn't matter. In this case, two of the teams ahead of the Huskies play each other in Ohio and Michigan, Ohio State and Michigan. So by definition, one of them has to lose. If the Huskies win out, they're going to the college football playoff. It's the winning out that's the problem here. It's so dumb to even care about this at this point. It doesn't matter. Like I I kept seeing people tweeting, like Brett McMurphy was like, they're so confident people being like the Huskies are going to be in the top four. And I was like, I don't know what logic is leading you to this point, but I can tell you straight up who the top four teams are going to be. And it was the exact four teams that they were like there, there was nothing about UW that would make the college football playoff committee. I, I mean, the win against Oregon is a huge win. This, that committee was going to put the other four teams like Michigan wasn't a question. Georgia wasn't a question. And they should be like, no, had, I think they got it better right. Seasons. I maybe we're a little bit down right now, but like we're dating back like nine quarters in a row or something, ten quarters in a row that this team hasn't looked all that great. I mean, I I think if you're too worried about the the not looking all that great leads to one of my general theories, which is that people pay too much attention to the trend that things are going and not enough attention to where things are. I think a lot of modern finance is ruined. Modern business is ruined by this particular philosophy. But that's a that's a podcast for a separate day. Not and separate but, people. <laughs> oh no, I've, I've got takes. <laughs> modern finance and business with the fabulous Pelton brothers. Oh, you don't think you don't think we can do it? Uh, we need to come up with a name with it for our business podcast. Although you'll point out again that it will just be fabulous the fabulous podcast. But if we're talking about the Huskies in comparison to the other undefeated teams in Power Five conferences, yes, that matters. They have not been as good a team as them. They do not deserve to be ranked higher than Fed. So I totally agree. No, I don't. I don't think that. I'm not even convinced necessarily that the last nine quarters, whatever you want to call it, even necessarily influenced the play this Saturday. I'm willing to take the Michael Penix sick thing at face value. I'm not really concerned about this offense necessarily i think i think that it is a good enough offense that they could basically still score on every single drive it's a couple of weird things and it's the same thing defensively as well but there there were keeping stanford in that game UW was the better team in almost every way there were a couple of just penalties they, they weren't enough the better team exactly Mis, mistimed penalties like it probably should have same as the arizona game been a couple of touchdown margin. No, I meant the Arizona game. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, Arizona just turns out to be a really awesome team. I I know, but like UW still should have beaten them by two, three scores and and didn't end up beating them by that margin because of just a couple of small plays. But like Oklahoma lost to Kansas. You know what I mean? (laughs) So you play to win the game. 
winning is better than losing. And I think that's the most important thing to take away from it. And next week, you're not like, I don't know who Oklahoma's playing, but it's not like, well, they're going to lose to whomever because they lost to Kansas. It's just every game is an isolated event. Those isolated events can predict future events, but also sometimes they can't. <laughs> that's why we pay attention. And college football in general, I, I, I remember every single year being at this point in the college football season last weekend or whatever, and being like, there's going to be eight undefeated teams. And then all of a sudden the teams play games and there start to be a lot less undefeated teams because that's the way it goes. TCU looked dominant and they lose to Kansas state in the big 12 championship. They were able to still go to the college football playoff after losing that in the crappy big 12 that the Huskies wouldn't even bat an eyelash at like this, the things right. change throughout a college football season. Oklahoma's playing a very similar game to the Huskies this weekend. They've they've got Bedlam, but playing number two at number 22, Oklahoma State, they're five and a half point favorites. Uh, the other piece of news we should talk about a little happier, Ian Furness reported Tuesday on KJR, a strong push to play the Apple Cup at Lumen Field in 2024 with a 50-50 revenue split. This was always the most logical outcome because doing so in 2024 would solve the problem of UW not wanting to get stuck with six road games that season when they'll play five Big Ten games on the road because Oregon has replaced Washington State is the swing home road game. And they have historically played those two teams in the same spot in the same year. It also like would be better for UW financially to have Washington State and Oregon home games on alternating years instead of always the same year. So it as far as we know, that's just a one-year thing. Like, I mean, it would be interesting if they like threw it into the rotation. It was like every five years they played one at Lumen Field and two at each of the sites. I think would be a cool way to do it. But that's, I think that's just the one year for now. But there's no mention of timing. I saw a lot of people with angst, if you will, <laughs> about this is the angst episode of the podcast. When, when the game would be played, and the time of year that it would be played. I didn't I still, say anything on that. I don't understand why it would change. Can't the Big Ten just schedule with the last weekend open? You know? Well, you they better for USC and Notre Dame in the years where that game is played at, in LA. So I think they yeah, can figure post, it out. I, I just, that didn't really make any sense to me why they couldn't just schedule UW to have their rival at the end, end of the season in the same way that Oregon is probably going to want to continue playing the Civil War, play at the same weekend. No, no longer the Civil War. Oh, sorry. The... Did they officially name it? I don't, I don't know what they call it now. <laughs> they call it no longer the Civil War. Uh, it's the Platypus Ball, though, is what it should be. Yeah, I, I guess it officially has no name at this point. So. It's given no name. Uh, but that, that to me, it seems like it makes the most sense to just keep it on the same weekend. So, all right, now let's talk about USC. The season started with high expectations. There's a, there's, there's a lot of angst about USC's defense, let me tell you. Uh, after they reached the Pac-12 championship game in Lincoln Riley's first year in LA, finishing 11-3 and after losing that game to Utah and the Cotton Bowl to Tulane. Uh, with Heisman, reigning Heisman Trophy winner Caleb Williams at quarterback, USC started the season 6-0, but the warning signs began flashing. The angst began after allowing 41 points in back-to-back -back narrow wins over Colorado and Arizona. USC then lost its next two by 28 at Notre Dame and at home to Utah before narrowly escaping at Cal on Saturday in a 50 to 49 thriller. 
The Trojans, that hit the over for the record. The Trojans uh-huh. trailed 43-29 in the fourth quarter, but stopped the go-ahead two-point conversion inside the final minute to save that game. Uh, they've dropped to 18th in FPI efficiency, fourth among Pac-12 teams behind Oregon, UW, and Oregon State. The offense is still doing its part. They're still elite. Sixth in FPI efficiency, two spots behind the Huskies on that side of the ball. Uh, Williams, ninth in QBR after finishing last season fifth. He was tops in the country in points above average, the cumulative version of that on route to the Heisman. His completion percentage and yards per attempt are actually up, but he has four interceptions after throwing just five all of last season. I think two of those came in the Notre Dame loss where the defense actually played decently, but it was the offense that couldn't get anything going against Notre Dame. Uh, Has been sacked far far more frequently. Already has more negative EPA on sacks than all of 22, 2022. USC as a team has allowed 24 sacks, including 17 the past four weeks after 30 total all of last season. So this would be a great week for Braylon Trice and Zion yes. Tupuola to get after the quarterback. We did see that with Braylon Trice at Stanford, I think more so than we have most of the season in terms of you know statistical production. Uh, Caleb Williams has run for nine touchdowns after posting 10 last season. His top target is fifth-year senior Taj Washington, who leads the team with 35 catches for 711 yards and five touchdowns, nearly matching all of last year's totals when he was playing alongside Jordan Addison. Brennan Rice has emerged as the number two receiver with 30 catches for 511 yards and nine touchdowns, a lot of those big plays. Marshawn Lloyd leads the Pac-12 with 766 rushing yards, tied for most touchdowns among running backs with eight behind only his QB. He's averaging 7.7 yards per carry, but has had double-digit carries in just four games thus far in a pass-heavy attack. Uh, Lincoln Riley talked after last week's game, or maybe leading up to it, about the importance of sticking with Lloyd instead of you know kind of kind of going away from him. I think he had a fumble the week before that was a factor in that. Uh, you know, we'll see how much and how consistently they run the ball in this game, but uh, certainly a scary part of their offense. The USC defense ranks 68th in FPI efficiency under former Washington State defensive coordinator Alex Grinch, who is uh, under fire in the LA media, and it's getting worse. They have allowed at least six yards per play in their last four Pac-12 games against a not exactly imposing group of opponents. Colorado, which has been very good offensively, Arizona, which is getting better, but then Utah and Cal, it was the most yards per play for Utah all season, the third most per play for Cal and Colorado. That was only the third most per play for Cal? Yeah, they didn't have as many yards per play as you would expect for a team that scored 49 points. (laughs) So I don't know if special teams were a factor there or what exactly happened, but uh, there you go. They seem to be scoring a lot. (laughs) I, I... I I agree that they were scoring a lot early and often. I mean, I I think people are probably underrating how difficult this game is just because of how bad USC has been these last couple of weeks. Um, It's the same thing I just said. They're paying too much attention to the direction, not enough to the overall. I mean, you do look at... (sighs) Kel also had four turnovers in that game, by the way, and lost by one point. It's just brutal. Uh, running the ball, it, it is interesting. So Jaden Knott last week for for Cal, obviously a 61-yard run in there, but like 21 carries for 153 yards uh, and a great performance. I, I'm not sure if that's exactly what, like I would not anticipate Dylan Johnson to go over 100 yards in this game. 
Oh, I didn't I didn't get to the stats on this. Uh interesting okay. that much of the yardage the last two weeks has been on the ground. 472 rushing yards allowed as compared to 527 passing yards. Utah averaged 5.3 yards per carry, Cal 5.6. Overall, their 4.5 yards allowed per carry ranks 11th in the Pac-12. Their pass defense has been middle of the pack, no pun intended. I mean, you look at last week, Cal outgained them in that game. Uh yeah, I mean the Cal also had a monster offensive game against Oregon State and scored 40 points in a loss in that one as well. Their other game with more yards per play was North Texas. So not necessarily that. They did average 6.2 yards against UW as well. So Cal can move it sometimes, I guess. Fair enough. I mean, I think it's going to have to be a factor in this game in a way that it really the run game has not been so far. You can kind of feel that Kalen DeBoer is wanting to get the run game involved a little bit more than they have gotten involved. I mean, so I think that's part season. of the reason they didn't score in some possessions in the second half on because Saturday. He was trying to get the, the run game involved. Right. Uh, if they can, though, and they can thaw things running and then open up the pass game, it's going to be huge. But this is the type of game where you have to anticipate every single possession that you need to score a touchdown. And just given where the defense was last week against Stanford, and all of a sudden they're facing the Heisman Trophy winner in Caleb Williams. I mean, it's obviously going to be a shootout this game, but they have to score. They have to score early and often. They have to be aggressive. Kalen DeBoer has done a pretty good job of that so far this season. Uh, But those plays, you know, the couple of mistakes that Penix has made the last few weeks pretty much need to be more or less completely free of mistakes. And those are the types of plays that's going to, that are going to swing the game, whether Roma Dunze was passed interfered with on the interception irrelevant, like that, they just have to score. And I, I think that if that doesn't happen, if they get down by a couple of touchdowns, of course they can come back quickly, but slowing down USC is something that they really haven't proven to us that they can do right now. I think another big key, key in this game is whether the Huskies can force a turnover. They forced one turnover in their last three games. Obviously, it was a really big one because it was the Mishael Powell pick six. Uh, but it's really unusual for a team to be undefeated, number five in the country, and have a negative turnover margin on the course of the season as the Huskies do. Very strange. Uh, and, and you know, the reality is Michael Penix has made some mistakes these last couple of weeks, obviously we're scrutinizing him very heavily because he's, you know, Heisman trophy favorite, but he has made mistakes play on, on some of these plays. I think seeing that Utah has outgained and ultimately beaten USC on the road, seeing that Cal has outgained and lost by a point with a chance to win against USC. That's the place that gives you hope, which is UW is a better offense than both of those teams. Objectively, right? Yeah. So when you look at it like power on power, you know, unit on unit, the Huskies are a better offense than USC is. They're a better defense than USC is. I think this is one where they should be able to move the ball as long as this offense looks normal. And I think they can score on almost every possession and stay ahead in this game. Again, like you were saying, forcing a turnover, making Caleb Williams make plays, get to him. You know, if they could get into a situation where it's a second and 20, third and 18, something like that avoid the penalties as well. You know, you saw USC, I think they had 11 penalties for 100-some yards against Cal, which obviously hurt them. Same way that that hurt UW in that game against Stanford. They have to avoid some of those plays, giving up free first downs. Uh, If all of that happens, I do feel like it's a very dangerous game, but it is a, a very winnable game on the road against USC. 
Yes, a game in which their favorite is is winnable. I I agree with this assessment. What, what is the what is the spread? They're minus three. Okay. That oh man, that scares me. <laughs> I I could. Is also there any is that. there any number there with, that would not scare you? If they were underdogs, you would like it better. I would rather USC be favored. Yes, I agree with that. that I guess that would scare me less. Uh, I I do think there's a chance there's a chance in this game that UW has a comfortable victory. Oh, I don't I, think there's a chance of losing badly, but I do think there's a chance of winning comfortably. I think there's a chance of losing badly. I don't think it's high, but I think there's a chance of it. Percentage chances of victory? 58%. We go 55%. Although the one factor we have not accounted for, third Pelton brother Nate Taggart is attending this game. He is, his record is 1-11 all-time in UW's games not played in the city of Seattle, neutral site or road games. Now, obviously, a lot of those are self-selected big games, but it is remarkable that the I, the Huskies have lost every non-Seattle game I've traveled to, except the two that he didn't, which were that, that aforementioned Cal game in 2016 and uh, and Michigan State earlier this year. There might have been a Colorado win in there. I look at this Utah game. Bryson Barnes is 14 of 23 for 235 yards and just did it on the ground. They outgained USC by 80 yards. I don't... USC is just kind of bad. and They're very, very scary, and their offense is very scary, but they're also kind of bad, if that makes sense. UW has been a better team than them this season, without question. USC is at home. But, that is a nervous 58, but they were at home against Utah also. Yeah. That is a nervous 58%, but I do think if I'm being objective, Nasky's probably Again, have a better chance of winning. You got to say, it's an angsty 58%. It's an, yeah. I just, I'm not going to see any of it. I want to check my phone and see that the Huskies are up comfortably and just be like, okay, I don't have to pay attention to this. Uh, that's what I wanted to have happen when we were at a Halloween party last Saturday. So we can't always get what we want. Nope, not even close. All of a sudden you're inside. What was against Arizona? I know they they beat Arizona in overtime. I mean, they have been getting outgained a yeah, lot. They're giving up a lot of yards. But they're also not gaining that many yards. I mean, that's 506 to 365. What about Colorado? I mean, I don't know about yards per play. Like, I feel like they're still... Their offense has been pretty monstrous still in this stretch it, it seems like it's been very efficient but they're not gaining a ton of yards they did the, they they did not outgain colorado 564 to 498 jesus christ how are more of these teams not winning these games uh well i think Calus usc is getting the turnovers do you want right? to know the, the game that they outgain the other team notre dame Notre Dame when they lost by 28 points. I mean, that makes sense just given uh, the interceptions. They had the ball a lot more times, I think, with, with longer fields. Uh, obviously, Stanford, when they crushed Stanford, they didn't. but And they, I mean, they definitely outgained Arizona State by quite a bit. Had, we only had 365 yards against Arizona. That's kind of kind of shocking. But when you look back, one, two, three, four, five, four of the last five games... USC has been outgained, and in the other one of those, they lost by 28 points. So, I look, I hope that they can get the run game going. I hope that Dylan Johnson has a monster game. I hope he runs for 150 yards, uh, huge plays, and I also hope that 
Michael Penix resupplants himself as a Heisman favorite in this one. You know, doing it at that primetime slot in LA would be huge. Against the reigning Heisman Trophy winner? Yes. Tony Castricone t- posted on Twitter that uh, the Huskies have only played the reigning Heisman winner three times. I mean, obviously it's often seniors, but and it's not often Pac-12 players, but uh, that's interesting. So this is a relatively rare opportunity. Uh, and, and I hope they come out of it victorious and come back home for Utah for the, the rest of the gauntlet. But we will see on Saturday. You'll see it a lot closer than I will. I sure will. On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.